Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with performance coach, George Carvajal. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today we have George Carvajal coming from um, Fort Lauderdale. So welcome to the podcast, George. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Good to have you, mate. So um, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on you? And in case anyone uh, doesn't know who you are, maybe a little bit about your background and your education and what what you're up to at the minute. Sure. Um, My entry into strength and conditioning is actually very traditional. in a traditional sense. Uh, I was a high school athlete uh, who ran track and played football. I uh, received, once I graduated, or actually before I graduated, various offers for scholarships. But I really wanted to attend uh, one school, one school only. I was at the University of Florida, which I, I grew up just uh, loving and uh, hoping and dreaming to play one day uh, for the Gators. And I ended up as a walk-on, uh, which is basically a tryout was encouraged to you know attend the university and come out as a walk walk on and was doing great playing on special teams and working my way toward a starting position when I suffered uh, four concussions in a 15 month period and that was the end essentially of my college career wow. uh, during that time I was approached by the strength and conditioning coach uh, who said you know you spend all your time in the weight room have you ever thought uh, of his career as a strength and conditioning coach and the truth is I had not. Uh, to me, strength and conditioning was simply a means to an end. Uh, it was a tool that I used to get uh, bigger, faster, and stronger in order to play the game. Uh, every day I simply walked into the weight room. I pulled a card out of a filing cabinet. That's the way it was with my workout. I did the workout and returned it back to the filing cabinet, not, never really thinking uh, or putting any thought to the process behind the programming or the workout itself. And so he said, hey, you know, there's a student strength and conditioning course for credit that you could sign up for and try it out for a semester. And I did and immediately kind of fell in love with all the aspects of performance enhancement. And the rest, as they say, is history. I applied for and did an internship during uh, uh, my undergraduate uh, years at uh, the U.S. Olympic Training Center and now and uh, another one at um, Moscow uh, State University in Russia. That really taught me the reins and in and out of what elite athletic development was all about. You know, they had they had it down to a science. Uh, once I returned back to the university, I applied for an internship uh, and followed by a GA position at Florida. And then a GA position, graduate assistant position, opened up at the University of Nebraska. Nebraska at the time was essentially a start of the revolution that became strength and conditioning in the, in the States under Boyd Epley, who for many uh, is the father of strength and conditioning in uh, the USA. So that was just a phenomenal learning experience. And uh, when the time came to make a decision of what to do after, um, though I had various opportunities, I really wanted to find out if I had what it took to take an athlete from A through Z with respect to performance and strength and conditioning. And so I started my own company, and I called it Primal Training, which has morphed 
and evolved into Carvel Hall Performance, where we work with uh, NFL athletes uh, primarily, big wave surfers, and special operations and military tactical athletes. So that's basically a little bit of the background. Nice. So, so the, the the dream was always to work for yourself, or was it was it initially? To I think work it was. A, I think it was a challenge. Yep. Uh, I think it was a challenge. I. I I learned a lot during those times. You know, you learn, you can, the, the graduate assistant, assistant positions are really what you make it. You can kind of stand in a corner and, uh, you know, clean the equipment and the mirrors and wipe the floor and do your time. Uh, for me, it was much more of a complete total mind, body, and soul involvement of what it was. If, if I'm going to learn, I really want to learn every aspect from the basement to the top of, uh, you know, the roof. And so I evolved myself, uh, or I involved myself in everything that had to do with strength and conditioning. I looked at nutrition. I looked at the training aspect and injury prevention. And once I felt uh, comfortable, I really felt like like I could, but I didn't know if I could. So it was it was a challenge. It was that's what it was. I guess some people graduate and the comfort zone, the comfort blanket, is working for somebody else, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I just took a different route. Uh, I had uh, the utmost confidence in in being able to do um, what I wanted to do simply because I had great mentors that taught me me well and taught me what to do. So did you have your own facility or do you use other people's facility? I do not. Um, I use other people's facilities. Um, I had had probably in the last five years – multiple opportunities, but because I do end up traveling quite a bit, uh, quite a bit with the uh, special oper- operations guys and having to kind of go at moments notice here or there, I realized that I could not be a business owner in the sense of owning a gym and also traveling to somewhat exotic locales, dangerous locales, and try and just uh, you know mind the business that way. And I, I didn't think that was possible. So I tried to look for the easiest solution, and that was simply just um, using another facility. Mm-hmm. So in the early days, how did you attract? How did you attract clients? A great question because ne- I've never gone out to to attract clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what happened? I is is kind of a you know funny story. Is I back in the day, Nike had the Spark certification. Yeah, remember yeah. So remember that the Spark. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that was you know I signed up for the Spark and I they did. Uh, the Spark Tour came through South Florida because South Florida has some absolutely amazing athletes. And you ran basically the Spark Combine. And out of that, I ended up uh, on the Nike website, uh, just a name and a phone number. Mm-hmm. And someone who played arena football called me and said, you know, I, I, I want to play arena football. I, I, I got cut by the NFL, but I think I have talent. You know, I want to kind of uh, work on speed and whatever. And I said, sure, and hung up the phone, and I had no idea how to start. I had no idea what to do. Uh, made some phone calls, and that was essentially the beginning. Uh, that parlayed into a couple of other guys who ended up in the NFL who uh, ended up passing on my name. And um, I never really advertised. I never have a website. Uh, it just kind of grew from uh, word of mouth and then you start working with agents and they kind of keep you in the loop and they tend to use the same guys because they, once you develop that trust, uh, I, it goes both ways and they just feel comfortable with the work. Of course, you have to be productive and you know, athletes hopefully aren't getting injured, 
but that's sort of kind of how it just started is I was, you know, a, a name with a number on a Nike website. <laughs> it's kind of good kind story. Of crazy. Like it. Yeah. Nice. So just on the, uh, on that topic, I suppose, loosely, um, you are presenting at the uh, USOC Symposium. Uh, when, when is that, George, by the way? That's going to be uh, May 18th. Okay. So that's next year. Okay. And you, um, you're talking about coach longevity, which you mentioned to me, which I thought was um, quite a nice follow-on from uh, a couple of the previous episodes that I've done, with, um, especially with Darren Roberts. And so would you, would you mind talking a little bit about um, about your thoughts around coach longevity and, and maybe a little bit what you're going to touch on in the, um, in the presentation. Yeah, that's a, um, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a topic that's, um, that's really looked at very often. It's when we talk about longevity, we usually talk about long-term athletic development and, uh, you know, the longevity of the athlete, but nobody really talks about the longevity of the coach. And uh, I think it's a little secret in strength and conditioning right? that many, many coaches are not happy going to work. It, it's become a job for them. Um, I talk to at least one every week, and I have for probably the last couple, five or six months. Uh, many are not in a position just to get up and leave, and I understand that for financial reasons. Uh, they need to maintain that nine to five and you know, can barely find the time to squeeze in 10 minutes for themselves, and they feel, they feel trapped. And... Certainly, there are some motivational waves, but more and more, I find coaches staying longer and longer in the periods uh, of a trough of a wave, the bottom, rather than the crest of the wave. And I think what happens reminds me of uh, Patrick Lencioni's Three Signs of a Miserable Job, which is, uh, you know, who you work for has very little interest in you, uh, your life and your aspirations or anything uh, with regard to your interest outside of work. And that's very common and, you know, certainly condition the collegiate level. Um, you can't really see how what you're doing is making a difference in the life of others. Uh, every human being needs to know that what they do impacts others. And uh, the third one I think is really huge. It's really a measurement, right? We have yet to define in strength and conditioning what a successful coach is. We have uh, an inability to assess ourselves, what our contributions are or what our successes are. And uh, – you know, is it the number of athletes you coach uh, that make it to the NFL? Is it uh, Olympic medals? Is it years with a particular organization? No one knows because no one has really defined it. And uh, probably the greatest lack uh, currently in strength and conditioning. And so it leaves everyone in this altered state. Uh, you go to work every day, but there's a void. Um, but, you know, what if there's a way to continue to feel uh, important in the job and value the job? What if there's a way to make a difference each and every day? And what, what if, if there's a way to actually measure their impact? And uh, I believe that there is, and it's called intention. And there's an exercise I'll share with you which completely revolutionized my life, the way I coach, the way I thought. And it is what I use to mentor other coaches who call and say, hey, I'm, I'm just completely burnt out, like I need some help. And it's a really simple exercise, Rob, is you draw a circle, and in the middle of the paper – uh, you throw, you draw three larger circles around it. In the middle of that circle, you answer a really, really simple question, which is, why did you get into strength and conditioning? What is your motivation? I find a lot of coaches can't really answer that, or it takes them a very long time to answer, and that's a problem. 
uh, for me, I'll start. Uh, for me, it was because I simply wanted to help people. I was just drawn to sports performance because I love sports. And, you know, I'm an exercise science geek. And so that inner circle is your intention. Uh, you know, it's broken down to me even more to simply just be of service. That's my intention every day. I wake up and the first thing I see in a three by five card in the bathroom mirror is a reminder of what I want to do here on earth, which is simply to be of service. Uh, on the second circle, you write down the qualities that you want to cultivate in yourself. For me, it was kindness and sincerity and wisdom. Uh, those are three things that guide my day. I can have a cashier who's being a total uh, a-hole, but my first response will always be kindness. And if I can't, I just walk away. It allows me to give feedback when feedback is asked of me in truth and honesty. And it helps me to be uh, both a student and a teacher every single day. In the third circle, you write down those things that you do, that you love to do, but you don't ever do enough. And for, for many coaches, they just abandon completely. For me, it's uh, surfing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, so do more of that and start thinking in terms of building a coaching practice around a life versus a life around a coaching practice, which doesn't work. Okay. Or works, yeah, it works for a little while before you reach mental and uh, physical burnout. Uh, by setting your intention, whatever that may be, it becomes a compass for uh, who and what you are. And you can imagine yourself sitting back on a bus bench and different bu buses will pull up and each represent a potential opportunity or a job. But you don't jump on everyone because you set your intention and you know what that intention is, uh, why you got into strength and conditioning, whatever that answer is for you. And so not every opportunity is going to be filled uh, in line with that intention or be in line with that intention. You can sit back and watch each bus go by without panic or desire you can ask yourself, if you got on that bus, what would life be like in five years and have a vision you know, down to what the possibilities are. You can do some investigation and research and then climb aboard the, bu the bus that uh, best meets that intention. If you identify who you are by what you do, i.e. your job as a strength conditioning coach, you're going to be very disappointed. Uh, I think if you are a strength conditioning coach and you define yourself that way, um, if something happens and you happen to lose that position, or worse, you leave on your own, uh, you go into a huge crisis. You know, I thought it was good at this. Um, I thought this is what I wanted to, to do. Oh, my God, what's happening? And the bottom line is that you are not your job. Uh, I remember going into a bathroom at the Leaders Performance Leaders and Performance Conference once and reading on the bathroom stall right in front of me, this is your life, and it is ending second by second. Pretty profound, right? Wow. Right below it, what's written, this is not your life. This is a bathroom stall. And if you think this is your life, you should be concerned. It was <laughs> brilliant and awesome. And I thought, absolutely brilliant. The most important lesson I got at that conference came from a bathroom stall. <laughs> so if you think your life is your job, you should be concerned. Your, your life is what you make of it. And most importantly, the qualities that you want to cultivate while here on earth are the most important thing. For me, that means uh, I can be a waiter. I can be a carpenter. I can be a janitor because all of those are in service, but I choose to be a strength conditioning coach. Regardless, uh, I'm happy because my intention is to be of service, and I can do that in any job I choose in any place of the world. The possibilities in the space of that are essentially end endless. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's, it's definitely um, something that, that me and Darren uh, spoke about um, I'm hoping quite passionately. Um, well, Darren did anyway. Um, 
But just just one thing for the guys that kind of approach you and say, I haven't got time to do this. I'm I'm starting work early. I'm finishing late. How do you how do you kind of uh, direct them in into creating time to, to to do them things? Like you say, the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and the and the surfing. How do you guide them towards making making time for the stuff that they really want to do in their life? Yeah, that's that's tough because you know I, as a strength and conditioning coach at the college level. I, I remember getting up and not getting up. I had to be there at five in the morning wow. and to run the conditioning sessions for guys who had missed you know, training sessions or whatever. And then practice actually starts. But that was a 5 a.m. to, you know, sometimes 7 p.m. Sometimes you didn't get home to nine o'clock. So that's one of those things where it's, yeah, nice to say, but how does that really work in the real life? And I, I, I will be the first one to tell you that I have an absolute ideal situation because I answer to nobody but myself, uh, first and foremost, to the athlete. But I don't have a manager, a boss, or someone saying, hey, you're, you're late or whatever it is. And most days, if the wind is blowing well, Rob, and the buoys are good, I'm surfing in the morning. And everybody's <laughs> going to have to wait. But that comes from having uh, learned that building a life around the coaching practice did not work and got me to a point where I did have mental burnout and suffered uh, – dysregulation of both the adrenal and cortisol systems because I was completely, completely burnt out and I didn't know what it was. But I realized that that's not the answer. I needed to do more of those things. And how do I build a coaching practice around a life is I started to just pencil in, which is what I tell these guys, start penciling in those things as you pencil in everything else. And sometimes you're going to have to make a little sacrifice here or there. Uh, there's no easy answer because we all have to work. We all have to, you know, be at work at a certain time. And not everybody can surf in the morning. And I understand that. Again, I'm, I'm just in a very, very ideal situation. But I also built that situation, Rob. I didn't. I built it because I realized that if that's what I wanted to do, that meant I'm going to have to be my own boss. I'm not going to be able to come into a facility where everybody works eight to five and they, Hey, by the way, I'm going to be late. I got to surf in the morning. That's not going to work. <laughs> so you have to work with a confine within the confines of the time space that you're allowed. Um, and that could simply just mean penciling it in, uh, as, as you do anything else, you know, if it's food shopping or, you know, fixing the car or changing the, even if it's once a week where you pencil in something for yourself, that's super, super, super important. Um, the last coach I just talked to said he had, you know, if there was something I could send him because he does not have time for education. Like his whole day is just coaching. And so, you know, my question to him was, well, how do you grow? And he says, I, I don't. I'm, you know, I'm kind of stifled and I've just settled for a position. So that's a coach is slowly dying little by little. And someone where you'll see him one day. And you'll see him on the street and he's no longer coaching. And that's a shame because he just settled, right? He's got in a position where, you know, maybe what you need to do is try and figure out what do you want to do? Uh, where do you want to live? What kind of athlete do you want to work with? Do you want to work by yourself? Again, that goes back to that intention and figuring out why did you get into strength and conditioning? And sometimes those parameters are set for us. And sometimes, in my case, I forced the parameters because I was just uh, – I was slowly dying and uh, physically and psychologically just being ill. So what advice would you give to not only a young coach but any coach who who likes exactly what you're saying um, and wants to set up on their own and, and, and start their own business? 
Research. Uh, the first word that comes to mind is you have to research. Um, first and foremost, again, what is what is it that you want to do? If it's strength and conditioning, then that's that's a very vague term. Why did you get into strength and conditioning? Again, that goes back to that intention of, you know, I, I like to help people. I, I like to serve. It makes me feel good to know that, uh, you know, I did that for the day or for that athlete or whatever it may be. So research, uh, why first and foremost you, why did you get into what you're getting into? If that's the direction you're headed, a lot of guys have a misconstrued idea of what strength and conditioning is. You know, some people think it's uh, picking up heavy things and putting them back down. That's part of it. But there's so much more uh, of what strength and conditioning is today and how, it, and how it's really evolved. Um, the second thing is uh, to be flexible. Uh, you have to be very, very fluid when you're first starting out because you, you really can't be very demanding. If you decide that you're going to be on your own, that's a completely different situation, a different topic. But being fluid uh, with respect to places to live and places that you might want to work may not be the ideal situation um, to be a, a an intern in Detroit, but if that's what gets you to move in the direction of your dreams, if that's what helps you open the doors, then being an intern in Detroit is what you need to do. And everybody starts that way. I've had a couple of conversations with guys where the the, the – Beginning question is, how do I get to be a strength coach in the NFL? Well, good luck. <laughs> because that's not the question you should be answering. The question that you should be answering is, how can I be really, really, really good right where I'm at? And that could be uh, Ireland, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, could be Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Just be really, really, really good right where you're at. And that's usually the most important thing I tell guys that – want to get into strength and conditioning and, and they're all everybody we all have aspirations for bigger and brighter things i get that but be really really good right where you're at and i can tell you that you will be found um you may have to uh expand your horizons a little bit but people start looking for and people start finding robin you know this is true those that are good in the profession mm -hmm. they're known yeah and there's a reason they're known so be really really good right where you're at and you may get to the NFL and you may not but in the meantime just just really be outstanding right where you're at that could be in high school that could be you know rugby sevens that could be uh you know somewhere the MLS uh, the US it could be football it could be a, a thousand things just be really outstanding right where you're at that's the best piece of advice I can give someone just going to take a very quick break uh, in between the podcast with George. So in part two, you can look forward to a great discussion uh, around building the aerobic base. So as I mentioned the podcast in part two, George spoke at length on this uh, on Jada Mayo's podcast. So I definitely uh, encourage you to check that out. Um, there's... George brings up so many points, as he does in this podcast, um, that offer great value to coaches. Um, so yeah, get, jump over to Jaden Mayo's podcast and check that out. So I just want to say a massive thank you, as always, to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. And if you don't know anything about the Nordboard and you've heard a little bit about it or heard a lot about it and you want to check it out, go to valdperformance.com. That's V-A-L-D performance.com. So the podcast couldn't continue without them guys uh, and really appreciate the support in and out of the podcast. 
So I hope you enjoyed part two, uh, and I will speak to you soon. Just going to move on a little bit, um, and I just want to firstly mention your podcast that you did with uh, with Jay DeMeo, which was absolutely fantastic, and I encourage oh, appreciate uh, that. Thank you. everyone to uh, to give that a listen. But just a couple of things that you, you mentioned on there that I'd like to, um, that I'd like mm-hmm. to touch on. Um, the first one was um, building the aerobic base. And, oh boy! <laughs> and I just—I I can't remember how much detail you went into that. Um, so apologies if you feel like you're repeating yourself. That's okay. But um, I just like to to kind of cover that again um, and just get your thoughts on on that as a a concept. Yeah, sure. So we begin everybody um, uh, with everybody the beginning of every meso cycle, and I use the triphasic undulating periodization program uh, by Cal Dietz. Um, by building and developing the aerobic system first, regardless of who the athlete is or the sport. Um, I found that having a robust aerobic system is the one missing component in just about every single athlete I've ever coached in the past 25 years. I don't really have an answer uh, or a why. It's just a focus. It's just really not a focus of most programs, specifically these days where um, the the – most of the strength conditioning programs around the world these days have a focus on the development of the anaerobic system, especially as it relates to field sports. And frankly, it's just a lot more sexier. You know, uh, The problem is that you cannot recover from those bouts of high intensity without a robust aerobic system. Uh, and there are, there are many ways to do it. For example, MAS, and I loved Dan Baker uh, on your podcast recently talking about it yeah. and, how he, and how he describes it, which is um, – Essentially, it's just it's just a measurement. That's all it is. It's a tool to be used, and uh, I love his frankness. Of if you like it, great. If not, then you know he used a couple of expletives. <laughs> just, just a couple. <laughs> yeah, and then, then there are other tools, and and you know I'm cool with that. Uh, yeah. I favor, uh, and I use tempo work, and it's not necessarily sexy. Uh, it may not necessarily be long, slow distance training, or 30 minutes on a bike. But it may be if that's what um, it calls for. I just think it's been bastardized as, as of late, specifically in uh, social media and really media all over the place. And what temple training looks for us is it could be in a weight room, Rob, uh, doing complexes or field work where we have the guys jog the sidelines of a football field until they get to the end zone and they run uh, at a quick burst of speed, not a sprint. But a, a fast jog across the field to a corner, and then they slow down and back up to a slow jog to the other sideline um, over and over uh, until the time period is elapsed while wearing a heart rate monitor, specifically in a specific zone. Um, it could also be continuous half-court basketball pickup games. Uh, there are many ways to work the aerobic system. And um, as our periodization program evolves, so does the energy system work with the understanding that the key to it all, the base of it all, has to be the initial development of the aerobic system. So do you – I mean I think, I think you, might, you might have said it there, but can you just give us a little bit of explanation what um, – so for a team sport athlete, what tempo, what tempo work actually is? How would you define it? Yeah, so tempo work is just basically the, that, that continuous – work in an aerobic zone okay. you know it's um it's very different than mas it's it, you can certainly use mas and i'm not certainly saying i don't use it um i just 
I, I really loved uh, Dan's response that, you know, it's just a measurement. It's just uh, something that you use as a tool. And I think that we, we get away from, you know, we get married to methodologies and exercises. Um, and sometimes you have to kind of expand. And uh, I think it's not sexy anymore you know, to do that long, slow distance work and, and to build that base because, well, if you do anaerobic work, you're kind of, you know, killing two birds with one stone. And I would venture to say that's not what I've seen in 25 years. And when I've gone out of my way to build that aerobic base, the athletes uh, sleep better, they recover better, we can do higher intensity, and they can internalize a lot greater load than just let's just start, you know, doing sprints bec- because, you know, sprints is kind of uh, what everybody's doing. Mm-hmm. So how, what does your transition look like going from that first phase to the maybe more specific work? It, it starts changing in, in terms of distance mm-hmm. and time and speed. And it becomes, it, you know, bec- it, it starts very, very slow. It starts with a understanding that we're always kind of keeping an eye on it and always making sure that that is important. Like, let's not lose focus that, you know, the aerobic system is, is important. So it could be, uh, you know, we could do some sled work. Uh, back and forth on the field initially. And, and the what changes is the rest period. And what changes as we start getting more sports specific is the distance. Uh, the load doesn't really change. And we'll try and keep it to what the research says is, you know, is important. Uh, really, it's just the intensities, the time. Uh, the methodology may not change. We may blow out the legs if we're particularly getting to, you know, 90, 95 uh, percent uh, during specific meso cycles. Well, we're not going to be actually be doing a lot of you know things that are going to blow out the legs then, and so it, it may be you know thirty minutes on a bike here or there once a week on a long slow distance. I, I still use it. I use it myself. It works very very well. But um, it, it's it's just a transition. It's just a uh, again. It's just a methodology that that I've used that it seems to work, and I try and keep it. Uh, as simple, which is part of what my philosophy and, and protocol for training is, is to keep it as simple as possible as long as it continues to work. That's that's what the magic is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does it work and does it transfer? So is is tempo, is the, the, the period where tempo um, work is is kind of emphasized, is that also a, a time that you're going to focus on technique and mechanics? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm focusing more on just getting in a specific amount of time mm-hmm. uh, within a specific uh, – uh, or a specific type of work within a specific type of – or time. Okay. Once we start going into more uh, from a general prep area or phase uh, in the first block to we're, we're getting toward the end of the uh, that mesocycle in that block, then it becomes more sport-specific, right? And that changes then – to more skill work. Uh-huh. That's cool, mate. So you mentioned um, you mentioned transfer there, which is obviously the the holy grail and what everyone's everyone's looking for. Right? Um, how are you? How are you? Um, and this kind of comes back to uh, what we said at the start about measuring impact. But how are you? Right. How are you um, ensuring that that transfer is taking place, and how are you kind of quantifying that? 
Yeah, that's a that's the other kind of uh, pink elephant in the room, right? <laughs> uh, very tough uh, conversation, and I think I think for a couple of reasons. But um, you know, the transfer training is is obviously hot and it's contested and debated, and not an easy discussion because we all have our different methodologies, and we kind of tend to stick to them. Uh, we tend to stick to our methods. But uh, Dr. Uh, Bondarchuk, you know, he states that there's three types of transfer, right? Uh, positive, negative, and neutral. Pretty simple. And that uh, in order to maximize the transfer training, really two things have to happen. One is that special exercises have to be chosen that closely resemble the both the movement pattern and the neutral fire or the uh, neural firing rates uh, that the athletes going to see in competition, and two, the exercises have to be performed at velocities that are slightly slower or with lighter loads, or slightly faster with assisted loads than those uh, and found in competition. And he uh, he observed that if the exercises aren't used leading up to competition, that little transfer happens, and so. You know, we get to the determination of whether an exercise is valid or not, um, and does it transfer? And then that brings us to the criteria-based uh, research, right? The criteria of dynamic correspondence, which is essentially just range of motion, um, you know, building uh, joint uh, specific strength, uh, the dynamic effort, which would be equal to greater than the, that produced in uh, competition, rate of force development, range of muscular work. You know, sometimes it's a battle because athletes get married, as coaches do, to exercise for some reason. Uh, I'm not married to any particular exercise. I like some more than others, and research tells us that some transfer better than others. Uh, what I try and advise is what and what I try and use is what is going to give me the best chance at dynamic correspondence. Uh, my focus is always to build a very solid foundation of what is essentially called, you know, Cal Dietz calls it potential athletic ability uh, via the development of maximal strength. That allows the athlete to absorb force and the use of uh, various methods and to turn on the nervous system so that it learns to fire uh, very efficiently and very violently. And you know, we want energy then to be uh, unleash in a very, very controlled manner. So all of those things build potential athletic ability, but not uh, direct athletic ability. Those are two completely different things. Um, to make it simple for me, I get the athlete strong. I include speed work with uh, an emphasis on acceleration and develop the energy system requirements of the sport. I let the skill development happen as a result of the technical and tactical components of the game, i.e. by the athlete playing the sport. I have always believed uh, in the very simple methodology of getting an athlete stronger, faster, and accelerating, and then let him practice the sport to develop the skill. It's, uh, it's old, it's, uh, and it works. And it's just something I've stuck with. That's what I learned, and I've tried never to, uh, and I don't now, try and, and mimic or, de or develop exercise that mimic what the athlete's doing in the field. I don't see it works. That is not dynamic correspondence. And I would venture to say that it, it has the potential for uh, skewing yourself to one side of the continuum of training versus the other one, i.e., the potential for injury will be greater than if you just stick to getting someone bigger, faster, stronger, and then let them practice the sport. Mm -hmm. So whether you're traveling around the country uh, seeing these different guys, is there any point where you're at one side of the country and you're trying to make an impact 
via distance coaching to an athlete on the other side of the country? Yeah, pretty much 95% okay, of the time. Okay, perfect. That leads perfectly <laughs> into the question. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay. And, uh, and specifically with the tactical guys yeah. who are deployed about 185 to 250 days a year. Yeah. That's a minimum of six months. And uh, we do a lot of work and then we lose it in the sense that it, it's, uh, it becomes blind. But the, the magic in remote coaching lies in trust and uh, in compliance. And it reminds me of a terminology that my good friend Brett Bartholomew uses, which is conscious coaching, right? And that's where the coaching relationship starts by getting to know the person first and the athlete, tactical operator, second. Uh, one of the things I do and I insist on me uh, right off the bat is when I get so, a new client is meeting them face-to-face. That's huge for me. Um, it's huge because – for several reasons. One is that it gives me an overall feeling of who the person is. You can't do that uh, over Skype. You can't do it on the phone. You can't do it certainly by social media. And second, it lets me see his body language in response to my methodology, my thoughts, and my beliefs as it relates to performance enhancement. Why is that important? Well, because I found that if I have resistance there, it's only a matter of time before we have a problem down the road with zero compliance. So if I can get them to trust me and trust the process at the beginning, uh, great. If I can't do that, uh, I don't even start the relationship. I, I do understand that trust takes time and sometimes going through and coming out of difficult situations unscathed or scarred, if that could be the case, uh, that it changes things. The, the key being is that they believe that you're willing to be there with them and that a certain level of trust develops. Uh, that allows the coach and the athlete relationship to develop. That's gold, and that's where buy-in happens uh, in remote coaching, and then compliance becomes uh, an understanding, or uh, I'm sorry, an afterthought. And that segues into better compliance, understanding that um, before the advent of technology, uh, you essentially flew blind, right? You send out a program, and you have no idea really what's going on unless the guys give you a car or something, and you're in the dark. Um, I now use Omega Wave. I use push bands. I use sleep monitoring, GPS. Um, quite a quite a bit of technology, which allows me to expand that myopic view that I used to have with respect to internal load. Um, I insist on at least a 90% compliance of the program. It's the percentage I've found to be most valid if we're going to see results in enhancement of performance. I have never found it to be any less. Uh, so out of 21 workouts uh, that we may be doing for the muscle cycle, only three of those workouts can be missed or altered. If we drop into about an 80 or 85% range, there's an equal drop in performance. Uh, not necessarily at that range, but there's certainly a drop in performance that's readily seen. But um, to, to be clear, that's just an N equals one observation. That's just my observation with my guys. So compliance becomes very, very big when you're doing any type of remote coaching that, that starts via uh, the trust process. How are you getting? How are you getting that? Pro, uh, that how are you physically getting that program to the guys? Are you using a bit of a bit of software? Are you using um, Dropbox, Excel. And Excel? Okay, yeah, Excel, Dropbox, uh, Google Chrome, mm-hmm. the the basic stuff that uh, the I had a conversation with a a really young coach who just finished school and is having a very hard time um, getting a job and. The question you asked before is, you know, what do you what do you tell these guys? And besides, you know, get get your mind right as far as why you started. 
is you better learn Excel. You better learn Excel. You better have someone that knows Excel. You better have someone that has built the templates that you want because that's the magic, right? That's the, uh, you, you can't just write a program on a piece of paper anymore. You're going to have to be a little bit more professional and, it's, and grant is it's going to make work a little bit easier. So I'll use a, you know various templates that will change depending on the needs of the sport or the needs of the occupation with respect to the military guys or and and the needs the individual needs of the uh, the individual. So it, it's uh, we send it back and forth. I part of that uh, software or methodology is a calendar that the guys um, and again it's it's a trust thing. Uh, if we if we get out of those 21 days, you know, 15 days, I don't have to test. I know where they're at. Then we start to switch the program around. And that happens, especially to guys that get deployed. You don't necessarily, you know, have an hour of the day where you can just uh, work depending on what it is that they're, uh, they're doing overseas. They, they may have, you know, it's usually 12 hours on and 12 hours off shifts, but it doesn't always uh, work that way. So uh, part of the calendar is them checking it sending it back. So I see where they're at. And, uh, again, it's it, the most important thing is understanding that you have to trust me as I have to trust you that we're going to be honest with the calendar. That's absolutely huge. And, um, I have used it for 20 years now and it's, it's worked very, very well for me. Again, it goes back to just trust and compliance. Those are the two most important things in any remote coaching uh, thing. Perfect. So just I'm, I'm just conscious of time um, coming to forty minutes, and I just want to. Uh, I know you said you don't have a website, but where can I know you're pretty active on Twitter, and you you do generate a lot of um, of conversation, and do get involved in conversation, which is fantastic and great to read. Um, but where where can people catch you on Twitter? Yes, for me, it's Carve Performance uh, on Twitter. It's probably the easiest. Uh, uh, way to get in contact with me, Rob. It's I, I got on Twitter because I wanted to share information. Uh, I didn't get on Twitter because I wanted to talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, is and if you notice the people I follow and follow me, and it's it's people that like to share information. It's we're trying to build a co- coaching platform where we can help each other out and uh, build each other uh, to a point where we feel comfortable sharing everything that we have. And I share everything. I, there's nothing for me to hide. I share everything I do on, on Twitter. Be happy to respond to anybody. You can also get in touch with me at carveperformance at gmail.com. So C-A-R-V. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Brilliant. Well, um, George, thank you very much for your time. And um, I'm glad we got to line it up. And uh, I'll, I'll let you get off and get on with your day. Get back, to the, get back to the big surf, hopefully. You got it. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, mate. Speak soon. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to episode 108 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. As always, thanks for your great support uh, that continues to be given um, from all listeners of the podcast. If you are enjoying what you're hearing so far, 108 episodes and nearly three years in, just hop over to iTunes and give an honest rating and review. Uh, It would be really appreciated and it would just help spread the word of the podcast. So again, massive thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring the episode today and got some really good guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from a really diverse backgrounds from the MLS to uh, Rugby Sevens to the AFL to NRL. 
So I hope you keep enjoying the podcast and I will speak to you soon.